Why do kids play sports? Is it to go pro or earn a scholarship? Or are they looking for extraordinary experiences that they can build on for the rest of their lives? I want to help the next generation of parents and coaches keep youth sports about the kids. And I am so glad that you're joining me. And welcome back to the Kid First Sports Podcast. I am your Kid First host, Coach Dave Vasileros. And today, my guest is Skip Gilbert. Skip is what I call a triple threat. He was an accomplished athlete. He has raised and coached three kids in their youth sports experience, and he's run national youth sports organizations for much of his professional career. Skip, welcome. Dave, thank you. Honor and a privilege to be here. It's going to be so fun. It's going to be so fun. What you guys don't know is that Skip's kind of a big deal. He wouldn't say this, but I'm going to say it about him. Skip's kind of a big deal. He's the CEO of the U.S. Youth Soccer Association and doing some quick Google sleuthing. That's two and a half million kids, 10,000 clubs, and every state of the union. And I think there's probably territories or others. There's all sorts of organizations that all kind of funnel up under the umbrella of youth, the USU Soccer Association. And I have so many questions about your role there and your view on things. And we're going to get to those. But Skip, we're going to start off with Little Skip. Is that okay? That's fine. Little, little Skip. Long, long okay. Little Skip. The youth soccer player. Where'd you say you grew up? Grew up in Oyster Bay, Long Island. Okay. Was soccer a big deal back then? It was, no, not really. It wasn't until fourth grade that I got my first experience kicking a ball. Great. So that's about six years later than most kids now, right? Yeah, pretty much. We go from almost two up, but (laughs) yeah, it was, I went out (laughs) to recess and they, they took us to a field. They divided us into two teams, put a ball in the middle of the field and said, play. And most of us looked around and going, what? Uh, (laughs) I finally figured it out that you actually are supposed to kick the ball into the net back at the end of the field. And some of us just took to it and off we went. Was it in your community, were there communities where maybe their national heritage was such that soccer was part of their culture? Or was this in your community, just generally speaking, maybe football or baseball or basketball was really the dominant sport? Again, way back then, pretty much football, baseball, basketball, hockey were the dominant sports. The club system wasn't at all developed. I think as you got closer into New York City, you'd get some of the club leagues. And as a matter of fact, tomorrow night, I'm with the Cosmopolitan Junior Soccer League celebrating their 90th anniversary. So they're older than I am and they've been around. Holy smokes. But but it's one of those things that you basically played for your school. I was playing for the middle school. And then if you kept going, you'd play in your high school and off you go. And occasionally it wasn't until I got into high school that I even know there were club teams around. By the way, Skip was a goalkeeper. Skip played division one college soccer and then played for the, was it the Rowdies? And you can brag all about that later, but Skip played at a really high level. Skip has a t-shirt with him on it by Umbro. I'm looking at it right now behind his head. Okay. Not a lot of us have t-shirts that other people made about us. That's pretty. So Skip was a man, but here's a question in a community like that, at a time like that, where soccer wasn't really in the DNA, how did you, first of all, as a goalkeeper, especially, how did you even learn how to play that position? Who taught you? We, We barely have specialized goalkeeper training today. Interestingly enough, I started as a forward, fourth grade, fifth grade, sixth grade. I was a forward. 
But as I went into seventh grade, before practice, I would just jump into the goal. And I'd fly all over the place trying to, to make the saves. And I just loved it. And during, it was the middle of the one season, my seventh grade season, we had a goalkeeper who back then he was probably six feet. I was all of probably five, two. I hadn't gotten my growth <laughs> spurt yet. And he let a ball go in over his head, the second half of the game. And so as I took the ball and I was putting it up on the spot to kick off, the coach said, hold on. And he said, Skip, you're in goal. And that was my transition to being a goalkeeper. And I never really looked back. Your coach must have noticed that you have that like slightly wild look in your eye that all goalkeepers have to have, right? That little bit of crazy, every goalkeeper I've ever played with or coached, and I call it crazy, but it's really courage, right? It's fearlessness to be able to get in there and put your body in harm's way the way that nobody else really on the field does. So they recognize that because otherwise, why would he put a five foot two guy in goal? That's pretty impressive. No, it was, and I did well, but it, interestingly enough to that point specifically, I went to a prep school in New Jersey, the Lawrenceville school. And my sophomore year, I played on the JV team and I went home for Thanksgiving after the season. And for the Lawrenceville school, you got grades and a report card for just about everything you did. And at Thanksgiving, my parents sat me at the dinner table and said, we need to talk about your report card. And I thought, uh-oh, yeah, this is probably not going to end well for me. And they said, it's from your JV coach, Coach Gerstel. And they read it to me and it said that he does really well, this, that, and the other. But what really captured their attention was his line, he has absolutely no regard for his own personal safety. And I thought at that <laughs> there it point, is. goalkeeper forever, and I am not going to ever <laughs> give up that spot. And But it, it goes to the point, you, you do have to be fearless. You have to be confident in your ability uh, to be able to put your body in positions that nobody that's truly sane would ever do that. Good on him. And let's talk about that coach, in fact, or any other coach. You just whipped his name out, right? It didn't take you any time at all to remember the name of your JV coach. That was let's call it pretty long time ago. Was he a coach who made an impression on you beyond just soccer? And if not, did you have a coach along the way that you could tell cared and took time to mentor and, and just be part of your life besides just at practice or games? There are probably two. With Coach Gerstel, the thing that, that he gave me was confidence. As a goalkeeper, if you don't have that, you're probably picking the ball up on the back of the net a little bit more than you should. But as a freshman at Lawrenceville, when I was playing with the freshman team, one Saturday morning, um, I was studying in my room, just lying on my, you know, again, it was a prep school. So I was in my dorm room and I, I was just doing some studying early Saturday morning and coach Gerstel walks in and sits down and he says, our goalkeeper for JV is hurt. We're leaving in a half an hour. I want you on the bus and let's go. And, and again, the confidence, I was like, I to, haven't trained with a JV. I'm not a JV player. Why would you want me? And he goes, don't worry about it. You're it. And, and that was, again, the ability to, to look beyond your own skill level to say, okay, people actually believe that I've got the skill to do some things. Let's see where it goes. As a coach, you want kids to think that when they talk about their best coaches, this was the person. And if you're a coach, you want them to say you, 
but George Seymour was my club coach my junior and senior year at Lawrenceville when I finally learned that there were clubs beyond just your school. And he was mm-hmm. an individual, never said a lot, wasn't the type that, you know, would yell and scream. He would sit on the bench and at halftime, he would come up and just say certain things. But back then, that area of New Jersey was a hotbed and most of my teammates went on to play D1. They went on to play in the NASL and it was a really good group of, of players. But again, his command, if he said one thing, you learn it was almost, almost the old E.F. Hutton commercials. When he speaks, people listen. And whatever George mm-hmm. said, we would just, whoa. And again, it, I remember only once, I think in the couple of years that I played for him, I came off the field and rarely would he ever say anything about what I was doing in goal. But one game, he, I came off at halftime and I think it was 0-0. And he just looked at me and goes, what planet are you on today? I'm like, what? And he goes, your distribution is completely off the, the charts. Who are you throwing and kicking it to? And I, and I didn't think that I had a bad half, but he clearly just made me think, all right, moving forward, every time I distribute the ball, I've got to really be looking two steps ahead. And he, just that one comment changed the whole way I would, in the past, I would have just either thrown it to someone who was open or just kicked it up the field. But now I started to think, all right, I really have to have a plan. And if I'm going to take my game to the next level and be seen by higher level coaches, my distribution has to be the start of the offense, not just a continuation of play. Yeah. Interestingly, from that comment, I'm now deducing, or I'm assuming when coach Seymour made that comment to you, it wasn't meant as a as an insult. It wasn't meant to tear you down. It was meant to say, Hey man, you you need to dial this in a little bit because you're, you're not playing to the standard you can play at. And I'm making that assumption because of the way that you talked about him. There's a lot of coaches who, and I've been one of them who will make a comment like that, but it's not taken as, Oh, that's something I need to work on. It's taken as a criticism. And instead of boosting a kid and saying, okay, that's an area I can work on. Now it's, oh, I'm not good enough. And he thinks I'm crap. You knew that he cared for you. He could say something like that. And it actually propelled you to higher levels of performance instead of tearing you down. Oh, absolutely. And and again, that's the mark of an outstanding coach. I can't remember again, the, the amount of time that I, and the games that we played for him and with that team, it was Mercer County select. We didn't play other youth teams. We played adult teams coming over from Europe. We played the NASL reserve teams. We played wow. some of the best teams that were coming around. And a lot of times we'd get our tails kicked, but we knew that he was behind us a hundred percent. And he was trying to make us as good as we possibly could be. Again, he wasn't a yeller. He wasn't a screamer. He sat on the bench and just watched. And then he would quietly come up to you and say X. And you just knew that if George said something to you, you got to listen because look at the players that came before us. Look at the group of players that we're with. Look at the success that we have and will have. It really had impact in a positive way. And again, that's just the mark of a good coach that he just, or she lives for the team, supports the team and wants the team to grow and how they do that. It's magical. 
it is magical. And, and the magic is in the use of words because words are, they're so powerful. They're so powerful. The overuse of words, if that's overuse of positive words, it starts to lose its meaning. Overuse of negative words, same thing. Kids start to tune it out. So it's like threading the needle on, on how much to praise, how much to teach and to encourage or whatever to fix behavior. That sounds a lot like parenting, by the way. And I think that's the same where we can overdo it on one or the other side of that spectrum. You've got three kids, three kids. Is that right? Three kids, three kids. And they all played sports, different kinds of sports. What I want to ask you first is, was your career or your exploits, was that known in your family as your kids were growing up playing sports? Did they all play soccer, by the way? They all did. And okay. from both my wife and I played, played sports going through and she was a D1 swimmer and track athlete. Wow. And so mm. we put, we wanted to make sure that with our kids, they didn't have to pay, play a specific sport. Although I was doing my best to keep them in soccer. <laughs> we just wanted to make sure they played a sport and played multiple sports. I'm a big believer of multi-sport play until you get to a certain age where you're really honing in on one. But again, if you look at some of the best athletes out there, most of them played more than just the sport that they're currently playing at a professional yeah. level. And so for us, it was, you have to play different sports. And so with our kids, they came through the ranks, they ran track, they swam, they played soccer, they did a number of different sports and they took it as far as they wanted. And, and arguably because of my career, I was probably the anchor of non-sport where I didn't try, I, I wouldn't push it. And I didn't try to make them mm. think that they had to follow in my footsteps. And from that standpoint, I was left aggressive towards them having to play and just having fun watching them play. Or, or they all played for, for me as a coach for a couple of soccer teams. And, and again, it was one of those things that it was their choice and I wasn't going to interfere, but yeah, they all knew my background. As a matter of fact, in our hallway, which I still have today, is a, an Olympic flag that hung in the 1964 games in Tokyo. And the reason I have that is one of my best friends, his father-in-law was on the board of the International Olympic Committee. And mm. I was one of the last guys cut from the 84 Olympic team. And so when word got to him that I was cut from uh -huh. the Olympic team, he wanted to at least give me something that was Olympic. And I ended up getting the flag. Pretty yeah. Cool. My kids knew they knew. And, and given my career in sport, they knew sport was pretty important to me. Yeah. And it's always a balancing act, right? You look at all the famous athletes you look at Michael Jordan and you look at Ronaldo and you look at Maradona and you look at Pele and you look at all the top tier athletes. There's not a lot of them that have kids who grew to be as high a level athlete as their parent was. But I think if you ask these people as parents, they'd be like, yeah, so <laughs> who cares? It's not about me and it's not about what I did. It's what do they love? And can I help them do what they love and have great life experiences? Is that similar? Does that resonate with you and your conversation with your own kids? Yeah, it does. At the end of the day, as a parent, you want your kids to be active because again, the cognitive skills as they develop mm -hmm. is better if they're athletes. They all took to different sports, 
but it was really more just watching them grow and enjoy those experiences without being that sort of helicopter parent saying on every car ride home, oh my God, what were you thinking when you did this and this? And uh, again, learning from guys like George Seymour, even as a coach, you're not standing there screaming your head off the whole time. You want the kids to enjoy the game, have the best experience with the game, and ultimately be fans for life because of the game. Mm. Did you face any serious injury issues as a player? I did. My senior year, as we we're going into the winter, I was playing indoor on one of the basketball courts and I was, I stepped over the ball and twisted my ankle. And when I stood up, I could barely walk on it. And it was the size of a grapefruit. It was my left foot and mm. I'm right footed luckily, but I went into the, the doctors into, into our infirmary and the doctor came in and looked at it and goes, ah, geez, I'm glad that you finished your soccer season. Cause you'll probably never play again with that injury. And that's yeah. all I needed to be like, oh, that's not going to happen. So surgery and you know, <laughs> I went through the, the rehab for all of spring and yep. joined George's team for the spring season, probably April, May, and came back and went forward. So you had to work through that and it's, and we won't get into this too deep, but I see reports of really high instances of pretty serious injuries now, younger and younger for kids. And I saw something, I don't remember, it was a week or two ago about girls, high school level, let's call it 13 through 18 year old girls suffering huge amounts of ACL tears. So that that's out there and that's a real concern. The other one is concussions. Clearly that's a concern for everybody. My son, my third son had a serious concussion. I think in fifth grade, fourth grade, fifth grade, he was out for a couple of months from school. It was serious. So that's yeah. always scary. You dealt with some of that with your kids where they played sports to a certain level, but then their bodies had different ideas based on getting beat up or having injuries or whatever. And, and I'm just curious, and then we'll move off of this, but I'm, I'm really curious as a dad, as a person who played sports at a high level, how did you mentor and support your kids as their life paths changed due to injury? That's a great question. And each of our three kids went through what you would say, catastrophic injury. Our, our oldest mm -hmm. came home from soccer practice uh, in high school. They, it was a wet day. They were spent almost all the whole day heading, having heading drills, which again, I'm not sure I agreed with it, but he didn't know where the bathroom was in the house. And that ended his soccer career. That was his third concussion. Our middle son played soccer, but then became a, a runner, highly recruited ran D1 and blew his leg out from overtraining. And so that ended his running career. And our daughter is a rower and she's a senior in college, still rowing, but her freshman year coming out of the pandemic, she got into a boat and blew her shoulder apart. Her biceps needed to be surgically put back together. And she went through it. And the, the message and the lesson there is no matter how good you are, no matter how much you prepare, bad things happen. And part of that defines who you are, how you adapt to it, how you move forward from it and where you go with knowing you've had that injury. And again, it's part of it is from a physical being of making sure your body's back together again, but also there's the mental aspect of it is being strong enough to persevere through the pain, through the rehab, 
And to a point, knowing that as our two sons went through and had to walk away from their sports, that there's more to life than what sport can define you. And you can still do great things and be a great individual, regardless of what happens to you on the field of play. That's a moment in time. Don't let that injury define you. Take it, pivot, and move on. And it's easy for us. We're grownups. We've been at this life thing for many years. That's a perspective. It's a very mature perspective that you just described, right? It's a very mature perspective, born of experience and good examples. And we flip that around on kids. And we just, and I know I'll speak from my own dad heart. We just so desperately want them to understand what you just said. And then we watch them and they can't, they just can't get there yet. They have to get through it themselves and understand it to where they really believe there is life outside of sports. I am not a soccer player. I am a human being with intrinsic value that plays soccer until I don't. That is a lesson that, that is as parents, please learn it young. And as kids are like, I don't understand what you're talking about. Of course, this is the most important thing in the world. And then they get to be parents and like, oh, now I get it. And the issue there is it's not the kid, it's the parent. And the parent has to be able to explain it in terms that's kid-friendly. There are so many parents today that their kid gets hurt and they're going to push because they believe that their kid's going to be a D1 scholarship, All-American, whatever it might be. They're driving it. The reality mm -hmm. is you need to allow the kid to drive it. We say this all the time here at USYS, there are too many adults that think that they're going to be able to develop kids into pro players or national team athletes or even D1 scholarship players. The reality is we as adults need to be able to lead the kids to the edge of the field. It's going to be up to the kid to decide how long they're going to stay on the field and what fields they're going to play on. Uh, adults don't make messy. Messy made messy. He had great coaches that guided him, but if he didn't have it in his heart, if he didn't have that ability to have the confidence, the perseverance, the aggressiveness, and the will not to say, I'm done, he probably wouldn't be playing. A parent can't do that. But unfortunately, there are too many adults, especially in our country, that feel like they're empowered to ensure that their kid gets that scholarship offer. That's not the way it should mm. be thought. Oh man, this is a great segue. What you just described is at the heart of kid for sports and what I'm doing here. And it, what I observe, and I'm at a micro level, right? You're at the macro level. You've been in the micro level. You've done everything I've done, coaching the kids. You've been around all the clubs, all the stuff, but you've also seen it at a higher level than me. I think the issues are the same. Adults aren't quite sure what their role should be with kids' sports these days. And I'll extend it beyond sports. It's their activities, their education, their musical instruments, their interests. I have observed that there can be an unhealthy push by parents to want their kids to meet all of the potential that the parents think the kids have. When I say unhealthy, what I mean is the parents have no idea what the kid's potential really is, and they have no idea what the kids really want to be and do. How many people do you know that you've either coached or known over your career where they, in, in 11th grade, they said, I'm going to be this. 
And when they were 23, they were something completely different. And then they were 30, they were something completely different from that. And then when they were 35, they were something like, that's how real life works. We change and we shift and all that. And I see parents and coaches, by the way, forgetting what you just said, they think that the coaching and the supporting of kids is the thing that produces the outcome that they want. And that's just not the case. And by the way, if Messi had decided that this wasn't for him, great. He could have gone and done something else with his life. And yeah, we would have missed out on his talent and everything else, but he would have had a life that he wanted and chose if he didn't want to make the sacrifices that he did. And that's the message for the 95, 97% of kids in this country who aren't going to be pros, who don't want to play in college, or even if they do, they're not really going to be top players. So what else? What about them? And I want to pivot now because I have five, I'm going to call them hot takes that I'm going to ask for, from you on complaints or common themes that I hear among parents and coaches in youth soccer. And this, I think, applies for youth sports in general. And I'm going to throw them at you. We don't have to spend 10 minutes on each one, but let's spend a couple minutes. Now we're tapping into Skip Gilbert, CEO of USU Soccer Association. I want your macro uh, thoughts here. One, youth sports is too expensive. I don't disagree with that. The reality is all youth sports are expensive. And I just got into this on a LinkedIn exchange with someone that's saying that in Europe, it's so much cheaper for kids to play. In Europe, they have sport ministries and there's a lot of government interjection of funds into the mm -hmm. youth sport paradigm. In the United States, it's not that way. And so therefore, if kids want to play, you almost have to. The challenge is on the pay to play model, there has to be an alternative. And I look at it and I compare it to education. There are many parents that will have their kids go to an Ivy League school. They'll go to Harvard or they'll go to Penn and they're more than happy to pay for that. But there has to be an alternative for the families that don't have that kind of resource. And they're called state schools. I went to the University of Vermont. Sure, I went to a private institution for high school. My parents paid for it, but then I went to a state school and I got a, a really good education and a great soccer experience. And so the problem with youth sports is the focus is on only the one, which is the pay to play model. And so the reality is we have to create almost two pathways. You want one for the elite side, but then it's, there's got to be something for everyone else. And from my perspective, and if I had a magic wand that I could change youth soccer in this country, the problem is we are designating kids too early. How many kids at the age mm -hmm. of seven or eight are playing on a travel team, a select team, an elite team? It's ridiculous. Players should be players. We should just call all youth mm -hmm. soccer players. We call most of them rec players. And kids know, oh, I'm just a rec player. And so that minimizes yep. their enthusiasm for the game. And given the fact that if you're 12 years old and saying, I'm just a rec player, it doesn't account for the fact that when you turn 15, your muscular skeletal system could all of a sudden go, we're ready to go, but there's nowhere for that kid to go because they've, they've, they've already felt like they're not good enough. And so the yeah, reality is, yeah, there's a very early, yeah, I'm sorry. There's a very early filtering of kids. And I love what you said, their designation. Another term maybe is label, right? We label our kids 
really young in their youth sports experiences. And, and unfortunately, that label comes almost always by virtue of how much money we have. Yes. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Too That's how much, too bad. And, and it's unfortunate. Yeah. But, and again, the parents get into that general manager mindset that I'm paying so much for my kid. I can yell at the coach. I can yell at the referee. And if mm. my kid is not playing the, on the A team, you know what? I'm going to go over to the team over here because they promised that she'll be on the A team. And that has nothing to do with the developmental steps a kid needs to take. They need to do it on their own, no. not because the parent feels that their kid should play. I was in, I was at a cocktail party in, when we lived in Connecticut in, in Fairfield County and it was all the kids were all running around on the lawn and a mom came up to me and heard of my background and said, do you see my son, Johnny running across the field? Johnny was eight years old. And she goes, do you think he has what it takes to be a professional soccer player? And I almost just wanted to go home. It's just, you can't do that to the kid. That is, you might as well have said, do you think that Johnny's going to be the CEO of Ford? No, I have no idea. And nor does he. (laughs) No one will until he actually gets there. If he chooses it. Yeah, that's right. And that mindset's really important. And in fact, that plays into one of my other ones that I wanted to get a hot take from you on, which is exactly this. 95, let's let's call it 90 three to 95% of all youth athletes don't play college at any level of any sport, any level. No. And so the vast majority of kids who play sports don't go to the next level yet. As you were just describing, the system is geared more and more towards that five to 7%. But what happens to those other kids? What's the impact of a system that is set up and focused so much on elite that the 95, 93, 95% of kids aren't going to be. What happens to them? Two things. Many leagues around the country, once you get to 13, if you're not playing elite travel soccer, there's really no recreational grassroots programming for you. I coached a team in Colorado and we had boys team, 13 year old, and we, they all wanted to stay together. They didn't want to go off to the different travel teams. It was a recreational team. And some of the kids clearly could have, but we were so good and we had so much fun. They just wanted to stay with this group and there was nothing for the kids to play in. So we ended up having to play in a youth open league and our first game, my son, who again, 13 years old, my son comes up to me and goes, they're so at center forward drove to this game and he's got a beard. <laughs> Are we playing them? Right. <laughs> and it was like, don't worry. <laughs> Size doesn't yep. matter. And so yeah. <laughs> you know, that's the system that we're in. And the only way we can change that is to create that alternative route of programming. Because realistically, we see it in all sports. The venture capitalists have seen that youth mm. sport can make money. And so mm-hmm. therefore they're injecting everything they're doing to come in and give you incredibly manicured fields, hiring the best coaches from Europe for an eight-year-old. Those are costs you don't need. There's the fear of being left out. And yes, you know, that's the world that we live in right now. Yeah, that's really fascinating. And I wonder too, if school ball hasn't become, in, in, in a lot of cases anyway, become almost that rec alternative. And I've seen that in some of the areas where I've lived. There's 
not the high schools where they have elite programs, right? You always know those teams are the same, the Benedict's prep and the, those guys are always going to be awesome. But, and I'll speak from Idaho, there's three or four high schools in Idaho that are, let's call it five, that are really good. And all the rest are pretty not that good. <laughs> and there's a lot of players who play school ball who don't even play club. And I got to tell you, I'm torn here because on the one hand, I'm saying, that's awesome. They should have a place to play. They get to play for their school. They get to play with their peers in front of their friends that actually show up to games. And it doesn't cost an arm and a leg. And it's pretty egalitarian. And on the other hand, I'm like, yeah, but the soccer's not that great. <laughs> so you have the kids who are really good, who show up and want to play for their school. And it's not great, right? And so they end up quitting and they, they play club ball or whatever it is. So I love the school. That I, and I hope that the schools can preserve that and not become too elite. And again, I, I love high school soccer because it's, if you think about it from a player's perspective, you're playing in front of your school classmates that you spend every day with. You have, your teachers yep. know that you play varsity. All of the community will come in and watch you. Where when you play club, most likely only your parents are going to come to the games. So yep. Your school teammates are not going to come out to a club game, even if you're in the state cup finals. I remember fondly my club ball because of the kids I played with, but I'm real proud of the two state championships we won as a high school player. And I'll yeah. forever be proud of that. So I really, I understand where the club dynamics are, but I, I really hope high school soccer continues to be strong. Yeah, me too. All right. Next hot take for us. There's too much pressure on kids to be the best. Absolutely. I just had this discussion with Simon Collins, our National League commissioner. It should be up to the kid to decide what they do. But you see it way too often that the minute a kid walks off the field to play, a parent is there to engage them, to talk about all the things they did wrong while they were on the field. We don't do that in their classroom. We don't meet them at the door of their class and say, your vision mm. wasn't on the, the chalkboard. You didn't listen and you didn't answer correctly what the teachers asked you that question. We don't do that for classes yet. For youth sport, we feel so inclined to dictate to them every step along the way. And so as parents and as adults, we put pressure on the kids. And when we start to label them, they're an elite player, they're on the aid team, they're this, they're that, the kids all know where they stand in the hierarchy of the, the competitive set in their club and in their community. And for an eight-year-old, 10-year-old, 12-year-old, it's just not the right way to go. When we talk about the World Cup coming in 26, what's going to be the legacy? And everybody says, oh, it's going to be a great opportunity for soccer to grow. No, most kids at six-year-old are going to kick a soccer ball. I, I have no care about mm -hmm. growing. The I want to retain kids. We burn more mm -hmm. kids out and send them either to another sport or away from sport completely. And if we were able to keep those kids, our numbers would go through the roof. That's a great answer. That's a great answer. Especially love this analogy with school. Could you imagine how our relationships with our kids would degrade if we showed up after every class and we gave them the, we gave them the what for, like we do after every game, they would basically never want to talk to us. They'd be like, please get away from me. They would quit school because they would never want to deal with that. 
and it would be a disaster for everyone. But you're right. There's something about youth sports that gives adult license to do things that they'd never do otherwise. That's a really good answer. Okay. And, and the downside to it is most parents are great people. They're, they're there to really support their kids. But again, sport, the enthusiasm, the emotion, it just, for some, they just get carried away and they can't help themselves. And, and you'd be surprised walking as, as I have over the years, walking up and down the sidelines, just listening to some of the things that come out of people's mouths. And you're like, and, and especially going in a different direction against a kid referee. We have kids that oh. are trying to be great players, but we also have 13, 15, 17 year olds that want to actually referee a game at the FIFA level. And they get dressed down by parents all the time. And you look at them and my wife says this to me all the time. Jennifer will say, can you imagine an adult yelling at a kid in a grocery store that way? They'd be escorted out in handcuffs for child abuse, but it's okay on the sidelines. Unfortunately, that's the mentality. Yeah. And now we're banging a drum that I'm going to bang with the, with you on this. And that's adults, we can do better. We have to do better than that. And I, in fact, I just had my team meeting, my, my mandatory preseason meeting with all the parents and all the kids. I coach 16, 17 year old boys, all the parents are on. And I went through a list of things that are not allowed. I went through joysticking your kids from the sideline, right? Shoot, pass, dribble, pass, dribble, shoot, shoot. Hey, leave them alone, right? They're there to make their own decisions and solve their own problems on the field. Yelling it at their own kids, yelling at the refs, yelling at other children on the field, right? All these things. And everyone, I'm like, hey, I've done most of those things. I, I, I put my hand up, okay? I, I've done them. I don't do them anymore, but I've done them. And then I dropped the bomb. If you guys do this, and you don't quit when I talk to you or when you don't manage each other. I said, I'm benching your kid just to let you know. And when your kid comes home and complains about not playing, you're going to explain to him that the reason he's on the bench is because you as a grown-up, can't behave better. And let me know how that conversation goes. And not my, all my parents are awesome. I have no concerns at all with my parents, but it's just setting the expectation and that's it. Look, you're hurting your kids. I'm not hurting them. You're hurting them. So, so knock it off. I want to finish up with this. You mentioned before when we talked that your main goal is retaining these players. I think what you mean is their whole lives. You want kids to look at soccer as a part of their life that they love, that they still want to be part of, whether that's watching or volunteering to coach or playing in adult leagues or learning to be a ref, whatever it is, staying involved with this sport. To finish up here, as the head of youth soccer in America, how do you accomplish making kids lifelong fans of the sport? It's a tall task, but the core response is alternative programming. And that's something that we've got to be able to be better at. So that's a huge initiative for us. For example, football went to alternative program and it's called flag football and concussions mm. drove football to change. Flag yep. football is now in the Olympics and it's going to be pulling girls like we've never seen before yes. because it's a great yes, I've seen that. basketball. Same thing. They created three V three. It's now an Olympic sport. Lacrosse is ahead of us. They created lacrosse sixes. 
So every sport is coming up with alternative programming. And we have to do the same because we have to get out of the mindset that if you're going to play soccer, you're going to come to practice twice a week. You're going to play 11 v 11 every weekend until you die at the age of a 100. <laughs> Many mm -hmm. kids, and in, in, in if our phones have taught us anything, they want to consume things on their own terms, when they want it, how they want it, where they want it. And soccer is the same thing. We have to be able to give a version of soccer to kids, how they want it, when they want it, where they want it. And if we're not willing to do that, then we're not going to be able to retain kids. So again, if our goal is making lifelong fans of the game, if we want kids to, when they get to be my age, still involved in the sport or just sport in general, we have to be welcoming to them every step along the way. And it does mean really looking in the mirror and saying, how many eight-year-olds are we putting so much pressure on to be an elite travel soccer player that by the time they're 12, they're off doing something completely different? And are we jeopardizing a future of fans in this country so that the adults can have an elite program to either fund or support or do whatever it has to be in order for them to justify it? And we've got to look yep. in the mirror and say, at some point, we need to wake up and say, what we're doing is not in the kids' best interests. It's in corporate America's best interest. And that's wrong. That is wrong. I love it. I love the passion of, for that. Of all the things we've talked about, I saw your eyes light up. Like, this is where your heart's at. And mine is the same. And, and I want to tell you one thing here. This is completely self-serving. So I'm just warning you. My kids, about probably three, four years ago, we train next to, at a middle school on their field there, and they have, I don't know, six, eight tennis courts. And one day I'm like, you know what? We're not going to train on the field. I had everyone bring flats and we played two V two street soccer. I made little cones, right? So you'd have a, a set of cone goals up against the, the net on one side of the court and a set of cones against the fence on the backside. And the out of bounds was the tennis court lines, right? So I had however many fields, so say six courts, so 12 fields, futsal ball on each court. And they played it like four square, like game four square, where if you win, you move up till you become the king. Yeah. And if you lose, you go down until you're like the baby. And we played that. No refs. I brought music. I had speakers and we just played music. No refs. They ref themselves. We played till you get to two. You get a goal if you nutmeg somebody. A goal for a nutmeg, a regular goals. And the winners move up, the losers move down. We played for an hour and a half. Oh my gosh. These kids had a blast. And by the way, I don't have the greatest skilled players. They didn't care. They loved it. So we do that multiple times a season now. It breaks things up. It's really fun. I tested it. I did a tournament. I called out to a bunch of my friends who are coaching other teams. And we got kids together, probably three different age groups, boys and girls, mixed everything. And we did this exact thing. It was a blast. And all we did was we used the tennis courts. That was it. There's four cones and a ball and that's it. And pennies. Okay. So who's on whose team? I got to tell you, I think 2v2 on tennis courts could and should be something like you're talking about. Tennis courts are everywhere. You could put lines, right? You could just do two little painted lines on these courts yeah. instead of Absolutely. cones. And now you're playing and the kids love it. And the parents are nowhere. They, they get to stand outside the court 
and laugh and cheer and sit in their chairs, but they're not on Johnny for not running hard enough. And they're, they're having fun. We bring in a food truck or whatever. It's, it's beautiful, right? It's beautiful. You and I should yeah. talk. We can come up with something awesome. Yeah, but, that's awesome. Um, I just think there are those options out there. I love it. I love that U.S. soccer is doing that. U.S. soccer is doing that and can't wait to see where that goes. Skip, I know we're at the end of our time here. I'm so glad you shared this stuff. Thanks for coming on and being like a regular person as well as the person in charge of 2.5 million kids because that's what we all are, right? We're just regular people. We're moms and dads just, and husbands and wives and whatever, just regular folks. And I love the vision of helping the kids love this game forever. That to me is a kid first vision. Put the kids first, stop putting our egos first, stop putting winning first, stop putting money first, put the kids first and good things will happen. Thanks for being on. This is Coach Dave from Kid First Sports Podcast. If you like this, if you agree, would you please leave a review? Would you share with your friends and your family? Say, hey, check this out. Ask your coach if he's a kid first coach or she's a kid first coach. If she says, oh, I don't know what that is, point them to my podcast, kidfirstsports.com. Uh, the more coaches and adults who are kid first, I think the better we're all going to be. So thanks again. We'll talk to you next week. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please subscribe and leave a rating and review. Share with all your friends. Tune in for new episodes as we grow this movement to keep youth sports about the kids. Thank you.